This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today, I'm joined by Sean McElwee, co-founder of Data for Progress, Dave Weigel, political reporter for the Washington Post, and Nathan Rubin, founder of Millennial Politics. Now let's jump right in. The primaries are completely over, and we're seeing a lot of hot takes on what the results mean for the Democratic Party. What are your hot takes? Let's start with you, Dave. My hot Hottest take is probably that the suburban voter uh, who does not care that much about policy is like the key to the election. This I'm not sure this is hot. It just seems like what I, this is what I think in general. Uh, that the job of the left in this these primary season has been to push on policy where people have like a vacuum. Uh, so the insurgents toppling people. I never thought there'd be that much of it. Um, New York. I mean, New York was this unique case, the the Tom Carpers of the world, the the incumbents who voted the wrong way on DACA and stuff, they seem to be largely fine this year. So And so that's the, the, the key voter in the election is one who just really dislikes Trump, is really worried about health care, doesn't have hard ideology on everything else. I'm talking about the key Democratic voter. I mean, the Republican voters still kind of still kind of voting, but they're, they're happy with things. They're, they're not as interesting because they're discontent and want things to continue the way they are. So Dave, just to set the context a little bit, we just had the New York primaries. Right. And I think when you're referencing that kind of suburban Democratic voter, that's because we saw pretty much record high turnout amongst New York primary voters. I think it was a 300% increase compared to the last midterm cycle. Um, and that didn't really work out in the favor of insurgent Democrats quite the way that people had thought. Um, was that surprising to you at all? Uh, I wasn't too surprised. Uh, so that's that's maybe what's influencing my thinking is uh, I believe very much in, in, in gross turnout, in the total number of people who vote, who can vote. Uh, I, I think... There is a lot of focus on swing voters. They exist. But the key in a midterm election where turnout usually drops to like 35 percent of the country is who you can pull out who doesn't normally vote. Uh, so the reason I think Democrats have had a very good year so far, uh, or, for, and I re, or a lot of reasons for optimism in the in the election, I should say, is that just like everyone's voting. So in New York, I thought that the key was that a state where you never break a million votes in a primary, uh, really, I think once in 20, uh, in 2006. And then <laughs> apart from that, uh, is close to 1.5 million votes. Uh, insurgent candidates who like Zephyr Teachout, like Cynthia Nixon, the votes they got would have won them, the, uh, the primaries in 2014 or 2000, 2010, not this, not this year. That colors everything. So who were those people? It was a lot of people who are kind of engaged and engaged enough in politics to know they're Democrats, but are not necessarily uh, ideological, that they're not clamoring for ICE to be abolished. They're not clamoring for a particular brand of healthcare expansion. David, why you yeah. gotta... <laughs> <laughs> but those are the, those, yeah, well, not to, not to bring the mood down for, for everybody <laughs> here, but 
that's what I think is determinative. And that's, I mean, I, I, having been around the country, I see that a lot. And you do find people. So what I found, I just was finishing part of a story I'm writing with a colleague. I find people where they consider themselves moderate. And if you, if you ask them a couple of questions about healthcare, they realize Eureka like that they are for uh, Medicare for all, but that's not how they conceive themselves. They don't think they're left wingers. They think they're just people who want the country to work, <laughs> work in a nice way. And for it to be affordable to be uh, American, you know, but, but working class, affordable to be middle class. And those people often sit out elections, but they're not this year. I think there was one notable thing, which is, uh, I got to plug Data for Progress, but if you go on the Data for Progress website, we did a blog post looking at the IDC races. What we found is where there was the biggest surge in turnout, there was also the sort of biggest support um, for the anti-IDC challenger. And there was this, there's this interesting idea that sort of like the idea of it being a Democrat isn't like a strong brand and there are people with strong brand identification. And, you know, you have six people who now have lost primaries for the sole reason that they chose not to align with mainstream Democrats. I mean, that's that to me is pretty strong uh, brand identification, a lot of brand support. But I think that the notable thing for the sort of intra-left primaries is we had exactly zero cases in any of these races across the country in which it was a white man who was winning the primary. Um, in fact, in the ones where you didn't have, you know, a, a primary victory for the sort of insurgent campaigns, it, there were no instances in which it's even close. Um, so in New York, you had Bunkadeco come within three points of Clark. Uh, you had Suraj Patel come within, I think, got 41% against Maloney. And then you had a white guy, Jonathan Lewis, who was challenging uh, Elliot Angle. No one even, I think, paid attention to this race. And he got, you know, 20-something percent of the vote. I did. I went and talked to him. <laughs> I covered that guy. Yeah, he, he definitely he definitely was the odd man out in the challenges, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you But had, Dave, isn't that your job to cover that? <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of people's jobs, but Dave's the only one who goes out there. <laughs> and then if you look at Lipinski, it's the same deal. Like, um, you know, that was the probably another one of the closest primary challenges. And again, it's, it's a white man being challenged. So you have, I think, this idea going into the primary challenges – that there was going to be a big ideological component to it. And I'm not saying that any of these candidates didn't run as progressives. And there was there were certainly ideological critiques. There were certain policy critiques. Um, but what you're really seeing is that the biggest divide in the Democratic Party, from my perspective, is descriptive. It is that, you know, something like one in five uh, Democratic primary voters are black women. And, you know, something like one in 10 members of Congress who's Democrat um, is a black woman. And then you also have a tonal divide, which is the Democratic uh, incumbents, for the most part, have not really understood where the base is in response to Trump um, and have been far too willing to countenance sort of less extreme tactics. Um, and they have not really been tonally where the base is on the threat that's posed by Trump to them and their communities. Um, and I think that that's where you're going to see a lot of these ideological or these primaries coming up. I think ideology might end up being sort of part of this, this thing. Like they also haven't co-sponsored Medicare for all, say. But the thing that's really motivating Democratic primary voters right now is that descriptive representation and that sort of tonal divide. 
And Sean, you mentioned the IDC. For our listeners who may not be familiar, uh, the Independent Democratic Conference was a group of Democrats who ran as Democrats, were elected as Democrats to the New York State Senate. But once they were elected, they caucused with Republicans. So they effectively ceded control of the chamber to Republicans and prevented progressive legislation from being passed. And what we saw in the New York primary was that their challengers, their insurgent challengers, knocked out six of those incumbents. And I think that was really um, a, as a result of an educational effort done on behalf of that slate of candidates where people just didn't know about the IDC years ago. And there was a huge turnout effort around educating voters and letting them know what the issue was. So kudos to everyone who worked on that. So I'm curious, the anti-IDC challenges were very successful in New York, but we saw the state executive candidates lose, Zephyr Teachout and Cynthia Nixon what is the difference there? Why did that happen? I would say there, from from my perspective, there were, there were a couple of things. One is it's much easier to win um, a state senate race. Um, we've seen sort of the insurgents have had a lot more success across the country in the sort of down ballot races. And I actually made this argument in, in HuffPost, which was that the big story that, that pundits are missing is that the ABs of the world, Alessandro Biaghi, the Zelnor Myris of the world, the Jessica Ramos of the world, these are the sort of next bench of the Democratic Party. Um, Zellner Matthew, for example, got the entire basically Brooklyn congressional delegation and political establishment behind his his race by the end. Um, he he really is a sort of rising star in the party. And we're seeing this across the, the country. There, It's much easier to sort of unite the, the sort of various factions of the Democratic Party around a group of turncoat Democrats. Because you had people who come in from the IDC – from a lot of angles. Some people were really mad that a black woman, Andrea Stewart Cousins, was being denied um, her rightful role as the you know majority leader. Uh, some people were mad about the fact that these people were conferencing uh, with the, the sort of Republican Party and sort of wanted revenge. And there were other people who had very specific policy critiques they wanted to see. And you could get an umbrella of people who ran from the most hardcore Clinton supporters to the most hardcore Bernie supporters who would all come together and say, fuck the IDC. These people need to be destroyed. Whereas with Cuomo, I think there's there was much less sort of unity as to the idea that Cuomo needed to, to go. Um, and it's also, you know, he can spend $16 million on an election. That's a lot of money. And, and even the most outspent IDC members um, were being outspent something like four to one. Whereas Nixon was being outspent um, magnitudes above that, I think probably 32 to 1 at the end of the day. And that's largely as a result of Cynthia Nixon refusing to take corporate PAC money, whereas Andrew Cuomo had such a big war chest from those types of donors. Is that correct? I mean, partially, but I, I think like it's also worth noting like Biagi ended up getting like 500000 for her race. I mean, I think there was just also an extent to which um, Nixon just didn't catch fire um, in the way some of the other candidates we've seen have done so. And the other thing is just that it's really, really hard to take out a statewide incumbent. And it it hasn't been done yet. You know, the biggest progressive victory probably in terms of votes, sort of raw number of votes was Gillum. And, you know, Gillum had to hit 32%. Nixon had to hit 51. And moving from 32 to 51 is a is an incredibly high, high mountain to climb. Yeah, I, so some some of that war chest, a lot of that war chest Cuomo built up uh, for the last three years. I mean, his strategy has always been 
to triangulate and conquer and pose no threat to the real estate interests in the state. So he is the only game in town. And uh, th- that word, I mean, he's got a fairly weak Republican opponent in November who he's going to continue to outspend probably 10 to 1. So Nixon jumped in the race knowing that advantage. And oh, my favorite number from the election is that Jeff Klein, who lost to Alexander Biaggi uh, in the state Senate race, spent more money, spent about $2 million uh, than Cynthia Nixon spent statewide. And it's very clear that you can, if you're playing Moneyball with uh, insurgent politics, it takes less money, it takes uh, less, fewer resources, fewer volunteers to win a state Senate race, to re- win a state rep race. That's not really what you want to hear if you want to full fundamentally change the party. Uh, it's useful if you're, you know, trying to win an Iowa caucus or a New Hampshire primary or something like that. Like the, 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 the scale of organizing can be pretty low. So just speaking anecdotally, I actually live in AB's district and I canvassed for her and knocked on some doors for her. And she had an army of volunteers. And my feel was that Klein was spending his money on advertising, on mailers and paid canvassers. And I think in an insurgent race like this, having the passion of a volunteer compared to someone who's on the payroll, I just think they don't compare. No, completely. And and the race for lieutenant governor seemed to be indicative of that, where Kathy Hochul, um, I, so I first covered her when she was running for Congress and won an upset in 20, 2013. Talented politician, you know, part of these t- statewide TV ads did not have like a giant ground game. And she didn't, all, she, she ended up winning comfortably enough, but won by single digits with Jumani's campaign, which was just grinding out the vote with volunteers in New York. Uh, and, you know, New York and college towns is where he really kind of blew it up. Uh, that That matters. And that's why I keep going back to, Midterms, especially, are not about um, the the electorate. I mean, one way I always view the electorate is it's covered as if there's a jar with like a hundred marbles in it, and you need to win fifty one of the marbles to to win. You don't. It's a jar with a hundred marbles. Uh, in a midterm, seventy five marbles. Just you know, you shake them out of the jar; they don't matter. <laughs> so you, if you can, if you add, if you add a couple of them back in on your side, you can build a majority. Uh, and the, the, these primaries have been a good example of that. I mean, look at the turnout for the state Senate primaries in 2014. Look at it after four years of people, of these guys getting pummeled and people getting excited about the idea of beating them. Uh, look at even with Cuomo. I mean, I, I, I'm repeating myself, but Cuomo had to crank out the Democratic machine to, to, just to, to catch up and then overwhelm all the progressive organizing that was happening. And that that wasn't there for Zephyr Teach Out in 2014. You, you, you change the electorate by getting people who go to sleep on these things to get excited. So I think one of the things that we're kind of skirting around the issue here is like the, the topic of tactics. Um, in these more local races, it really seems that just hitting the pavement, knocking the doors, making the calls, that's enough. But statewide, you really need to spend the money to reach the voters. I mean, Sean, I'm curious what you think about the difference between local and statewide races. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that we over sort of learned this lesson about TV. Um, TV is still an incredibly effective tool. It's just one that the left really hasn't had a lot of ability to use um, because of sort of just the scale of the races we're running. And this is a sort of argument that I actually make a lot, which is I think people were just expecting too much out of a sort of left electoral game because the reality is, and we should be frank about this, the left hasn't invested a lot in how do you build the sort of capacities to win electoral campaigns. 
um, we don't have a sort of like deep bench of left people who like know a ton about how to use NGP van. We don't know, have a ton of like, who is the left consultant that gets your TV ads up and stuff like that. But what I think people are missing about all these races, and I, I get at this in my piece and I just wrote for HuffPost, is that every time you have either a victory or a loss that is sort of driven by this new emergent progressive movement, every member of that campaign gets new experience in how you do field organizing. They get new experience in how you do social media advertising. They get new experience in how do you deal with the media. I think the left learned a lot of lessons in the Julia Salazar race about how a candidate needs to be prepared to deal with the media. And all of that experience will build up. Um, you had a bunch of people who after um, AOC's victory, they were going around and they were maybe going to you know, work with Presley or work with Carrie Harris. And we're sort of building that bench of talent. And the thing was with Cynthia, and I like her a lot, I think two problems that she had. One was she never made a sort of like she had she had the same problem Clinton had against Trump, which was she was trying to hit him on too many different angles, right? She was like, "You're also you're not progressive enough. Also, you're corrupt." Like, and all of those sort of wires got crossed, and she didn't have a coherent argument for like, "Here's why you should vote against Cuomo." And the other thing is, is if she had hit something like forty percent in the polls, if she had shown like a certain amount of viability. I think all of Cuomo's cards start like his house starts crumbling as sort of people sense weakness and blood in the water and they defect. But he, you never really hit that point where like Cuomo wasn't in control of the race. If you'd hit that point, I think he would have been done because everyone in this state fucking hates him, but they don't want to like bet on someone until that person can can beat him because they right. saw what happened I, I with saw a poll you know a week before the primary that said Cuomo had you know a 20 or 30 point lead or something like that and to the point of viability you know I think it there is a psychological aspect there when people see that no one wants to vote for a loser so in their mind they're like well Cuomo has it in the bag I might as well vote for him anyway so I wonder if that was disincentivizing people because they saw that she, in their mind, had no chance when in reality, like, polls are wrong and we've seen that before. Obviously, it's a big hurdle to overcome that gap, but I do agree with you that there was a certain, and I hate this word, viability gap there. I mean, she did overperform the polls. It's just like, you you know, progressive challengers have overperformed the polls, like, but even with the polls, like, there was no chance she was going to overperform enough to, to actually like close that gap. So is there any chance in 2020 that we could see statewide centrist incumbents unseated by progressive insurgents? Is that a possibility you think? So if this is a question for me. Uh, I wouldn't rule it out. The, the only logistical problem in 2020 is going to be, I think a lot of organizing energy is going to go behind people running for president. Uh, a, a lot of the energy, I mean, just they're, in human terms, <laughs> human capital, there are people this time who have been uh, the Claire Sandbergs of the world, um, the people who work for Kerry Harris, uh, the, the, who were working on Senate and House campaigns who I think are going to plunge into Bernie 2020 or, some, or Warren's race, etc. So uh, it is possible, especially I think this, I want to see what the dynamics are legislatively, because you could see a situation where uh, Democrats have the House uh, or 
they have the House and Senate and they are perceived as not doing enough to stop the Trump agenda. Or Democrats could lose. I mean, or that Democrat- is a real scenario. Or Democrats lose. And there's the same thing <laughs> that my, my members are, are not behaving like I sent them to Washington to behave. Uh, so I can I can see that. I can see some of it happening. I don't know where it'd be. So the the, the problems you have, like, let's say uh, Dan Lipinski, I think, is going to be a target because that's an early primary. He's, you know, the clock's running already. He's got less than two years before he's on the ballot again. I think I, I want to see how much people organize to beat him. Henry Cuellar, the people who, who um, on paper are voting with, not with the, their um, their base, but you know, voting basically with their donor interests. I think the the targets on their back a bit more, and the and the fact that AOC won and people like that uh, have been competitive is going to put the fear into people. I mean, Chris Coons in Delaware um, just watched Kerry Harris get uh, thirty two thousand votes in a primary, which uh, I keep pointing out in another year would have been enough to win the primary. Like in a in twenty fourteen, that would have been, made her a senator. Um, does he behave differently? And if he doesn't, I think you could see a challenge there. But within two months, a lot of the people who are are who have the experience to do this, I think are going to be looking at presidential candidates. And I want to see who builds at the state level. I would say, I would say I'm pretty bullish on a, on a large number of successful primary challengers in the next cycle. And my reasoning for this is I do think Democrats have a, have a pretty strong chance of taking the house. And I think that there's a pretty big expectation gap between what primary voters think they're getting from a democratic house and what they're actually going to get. Yeah. There's also an increasingly large bench of candidates who can run for office because we're seeing so much talent mm-hmm. come up at the state Senate level. Um, I think that Cuellar is actually very underrated as a primary challenge because like there's this Texas people like hate to be told from outside, like that there are narratives that they're not picking up on, but like Cuellar is, is like currently raising money um, in direct contravention of like the DCCC. So like he's starting to hit the thing that like the IDC members did where you're like pissing off normies and yeah. like you never <laughs> want to piss off normies. I would say that I, I think Chris Coons is definitely uh, a potential target and he definitely has like less deep roots in Delaware than, than Carper does. But I just want to throw out Mark Warner. Warner has definitely not been a heavy leader of the resistance. I think that he is sort of predisposed to do things that will piss off the resistance. And most importantly, he now has um, beneath him a very large number of women of color, um, LGBT candidates who are all incredibly talented, have immediate national name ID, um, and I think are, are hungry for, for the next step. And if any one of those people, um, if any of your Guzmans or Romes um, decide that they sense vulnerability from Warner, I think that they could immediately have a, a decent chance of, uh, of mounting a pretty pretty devastating primary challenge. And, and for our listeners, Mark Warner is a Democratic senator from Virginia. Um, I believe he's been in office uh, since, I, I think, was it 2008 he was elected? And before that, he was a governor as well. So he is very much establishment, um, for lack of a better word. And uh, he also sits prominently on the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee. So he's been involved in the Trump-Russia investigation um, so I almost think that his work there might counterbalance uh, some of him straying from the base because people look up to him, at least in more of the mainstream media, as a uh, authority when it comes to the investigation into the president. 
Yeah, he's Mr. Sunday Show. If it's not Adam Schiff, it's him uh, discussing the Russia thing, which for for like I find nor- normies, which is a useful term <laughs> to define in a couple ways. And I found it, can you can you define that for our listeners? I mean, just a person who's not that ideological, but wants Trump gone uh, is is how I use it in the modern context or, or like the current context, I should say. And with uh, I find a, a kind of almost a, a wealth gap where the voters who are most concerned about Russia and think Trump needs to be removed, he might go down any day, this document might come out and blow him up, like the people who retweet the Democratic coalition on Twitter, I, I generally find are like Montgomery County, Prince William, like the, the pretty affluent Democrats, like they make lots of money, they're voting to ta- tax themselves higher, but they have social values that they, they're being offended. Uh, whereas hey, more, I, more, we, we retweet the Dem coalition on occasion. Hell yeah. The, uh, the more working class Democratic voters, the African-American vo- uh, vote, the Latinos, I don't see the same uh, compulsion there. Um, Virginia is a place, I would say, where, uh, like in Delaware, you're going to get more potential upset. Um, the ideal candidate is probably not like a white state, white dude state legislator. The ideal candidate is probably an African-American um, who can campaign in Tidewater, um, campaign in rural Virginia, um, and has progressive values. So I don't know who you would put in a lab, but like there's different ways to campaign in all these states. When in, in Texas, you need somebody who can organize Hispanic voters who don't normally vote in midterms at a very low, a very low level. I mean, this has been a problem identified by national democratic strategists where they think they might be pick, they might pick up like seats Trump won by 10 points before they pick up some Hispanic seats went for, for Clinton. So you, that is a a fascinating organizing challenge if somebody does go after Cuellar. And with Lipinski, um, similar. I mean, uh, the thing I heard in that race was that um, Marie Newman, who I, I met like perfectly, there are members of Congress who have her level of, you know, political talent and uh, and expertise and resume. Um, but she got swiped at the end because she, the Latino machine uh, in Cicero and the Chicago part of the district all came out for, Lipinski. So I think dismantling that in the way that, you know, look at what, look at Julia Salazar, look at Jessica Ramos, look at Zellner Myrie. Like there's clearly a, mo- a model here where um, having the conversation with, with uh, voters and sounding honest and that you come from a place of understanding uh, the issues there. I mean, it, it's, it's frankly just easier if you represent the, 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 the community that I can see that happening where it's a, uh, they're at least enabling that, but uh, the, that Lipinski race is going to be, I think the first interesting test if people cohere around uh, another candidate. Now, what Lipinski could do is something I've seen uh, with uh, a lot of people challenged by insurgents and is recognize that they're in trouble and vote with Democrats on everything. He could do that and and neuter some of the criticism. Uh, We'll see. I mean, here's here's the the thing that I think of this as sort of a theory. Um, The actual content of the primary challenge really does come second after you get the sort of like proof of viability. And my read on this is that there are actually a lot of Ayanna Presleys in the world. And and here's what I mean by that. Ayanna Presley served on, on Capitol Hill for 16 years. She was on the Boston City Council for eight years. She's She's been long time considered and by Emily's List, by Tom Perez, to be a rising Democratic star. And she was also like, well, when the fuck is my turn? Like, who's going to give up a seat so that I can have it? And no one was. So she's like, well, I'm going to take it. And there are women like this across the country who are incredibly talented politicians and who now see 
that there is a path for them to be in Congress. Mm -hmm. And if they start running primary challenges, um, I actually think that groups like Emily's List, I think that already groups like Collective PAC and Latino Victory Fund will, will, will back them. Um, and so I really think that the, the reason I'm bullish on seeing a lot of primaries is because there's, there's going to be room for a critique of the Democratic Party because I think you're going to see a lot of working with Trump coming from, from congressional Democrats. And there is going to be a large, talented pool of politicians who say, why can't I do what Ayanna Presley did? And the answer is, to be quite frank, they probably could. Um, and if they run for office and they make a real shot of it, there will be an infrastructure that's ready to support them in those challenges. Um, and so I think that you could actually see a lot of candidate emergence um, and you can see a lot of viable candidates who run really strong races. Bayana Presley and the other interesting primary that fits this mold is Jah uh, Johanna Hayes, who had never run for office, African-American teacher in Connecticut, teacher of the year, like just naturally great charismatic candidate. Um, and her story was that it was an open seat. The Democratic state Democratic Party apparatus really wanted somebody who has you know, pretty loyal, unexciting um, candidate who run and lost a couple of races, Mary Glassman. Um, Hayes appealed to one. She was African-American. She appealed to African-American voters Two, she made early, early on excited uh, labor unions and three, like one endorsements from some Connecticut Democrats who were fine with the party changing. Like Chris Murphy was the, was the main one here where it was, it was very well known that Senator Chris Murphy um, was getting behind the candidate who was not endorsed by the party. So you're going to, I think need a couple of, need some switching here. And um, that's the, Ayanna Presley, that's going to have repercussions because a lot of democratic institutions um, were caught with their pants down. You know, the congressional black caucus endorsed Mike Capuano over somebody who's going to be a big star of, of African-American politics. Yeah. And I mean, like one thing I'd really quickly note here is that the Democratic Party, I think, wants to have more women of color in Congress. Um, to be entirely frank, this cycle, they have not done a very good job at making sure that that happens. And so if you're like a group like Emily's List or your group like Collective Pack, and your goal is to get more women of color office, it increasingly becomes true that the only way to make those numbers work is like some people have to lose their seats. There are, I mean, like you can, I guess you could push for like, we should expand Congress and I, I'd be open to that idea. I think it's probably a good one. Um, but there are a finite number of seats um, and a good number of them are currently being held by white male Democrats. Well, Sean, I think to your point, um, we're at a moment in time where we see kind of the next generation, whether that's Gen X or millennials knocking on the door and saying, hey, I have 5, 10, 15 years work experience. I'm accomplished in my field. I want to help my community. And they don't really have a clear path because there are blockers, for lack of a better term, already in office. And that naturally just kind of facilitates primary challenges. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you you know, it's the the tenure of Congress members has definitely increased um, at the same time as the interest in it has increased among young people at the same time as the divides within the Democratic Party are increasingly age divides. There, there, this is, there was a time when this was not true, but it, it is true now, which is that like the way you approach politics um, you know, North and South, you know, certainly I'm sure matters, rural and urban certainly matters, but in the democratic party, age is a key divider. 
in how do you approach politics? Do you, do you approach it from a sort of a more centrist, moderate way? Do you approach it from like a more established way? Increasingly, that very much correlates with age. So you do have a, a lot of um, sort of natural things that are occurring and natural divides that are occurring that would suggest a good number of primary challenges. So going into the general election, how can we ensure that these progressive insurgents actually stay accountable to their values? And if they do win in the general election, how do we hold them accountable in office? Yeah. So I think that the Salazar race is sort of key for this because, you know, she won without sort of having the mantle of the IDC to run against. Like she was just able to say, like, this is a bad incumbent and and you should vote against them. What I'd say is that, and I, I, I should plug my, I just wrote a piece for, for HuffPost of sort of like how this happened and, and what's the future. The groups that I'm in pretty regular contact with, groups like No IDC, are very much not thinking that this is the end. Um, I, I went to an event that they hosted. It was the Broadway Blue Wave. And it was um, Broadway stars doing sort of songs and stuff in between like activists coming out and being like, we need, you know, the Gender Expression Non-Discrimination Act. We need, you know, New York Health Act. We need all these policies. Um, so these these organizations were very much in it for one, accountability for Democrats, but for two, concrete policies that they were frustrated that they hadn't seen pass. So I think that it is un, uh, indisputable to my mind that these groups are going to continue pushing for those policies. They have shown an incredible capacity um, for knowing how to run campaigns. Uh, I, I, an example I give for this a lot is that when John Liu hopped in the race, he brought on Heather Stewart from Empire State and Indivisible and Lisa Delacqua from True Blue New York to run his campaign. You know, J- John Liu has been in, in New York politics for two decades now. And instead of hiring any one of the consultants that he must have come across during his time, he brought on two sort of new resistance type activists. So I think that there is definitely going to be um, these organizations continuing to um, exist. They have clear policy demands. They have clear things that they want to see happen. Um, And I think that they are going to fight to make sure those things happen. Awesome. All right. So I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, Thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, feel free to continue it online on social media. I think Twitter is probably the best way to get at all of us. Um, Follow Sean at Sean McElway and Data for Progress. Um, Find me, Nathan H. Rubin on Twitter, Jordan, Jordan Val Allen, Dave Weigel at the Washington Post. Thank you uh, everybody and stay tuned for our next episode.